Hello and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast, supported by Ride WA. Legends, it's so good to have you along. Uh, thanks again for the feedback on all the episodes. It's been great so far and keep it coming because we're at episode four and today we're going to be speaking with Kate Wagner. Now, Kate Wagner is a cycling journalist. She is a very talented writer and uh, she used to be in the architecture field, uh, but she's moved to pro cycling recently and she's become a red hot hit She's known specifically for her long-form profiling of riders, but not just any riders. She's done the biggest and the best riders in the world. Primoz Roglic, Tadej Pogacar, Matija Mohoric, Gino Mata. Kate is the one that's really got behind the scenes and found out things about these riders that no one else has. And in terms of the cycling media, Kate would be, I would say, the journo closest to these riders. And so she really knows some great details about them that aren't really shared uh, to the general public. So it was really good to catch up with Kate and talk more about this. You know, what was it like writing these articles, these profiles, these 6,000 words, essays about these riders? You know, what is it like? And so we really got deep into that and talked about what it's like getting your press pass at the Tour de France, the day-to-day, uh, catching up with the riders, you know, when it goes wrong, when it goes right. She shares some really interesting insights and she's going to be doing some big things next year. Uh, so certainly look out for her. Kate Wagner is the name. So uh, with that, Legends, I'll leave you to it. You know what to do. Get on that ergo. Get out on the commute. If it's on the car ride to work, Whatever, just stick it on. This is episode four. Let's do it. Okay, welcome to the Press Room Podcast. We're here for another episode this morning. It is 6 a.m. my time and 5 p.m. on the other end of this line. The guest today is Kate Wagner. Now, Kate Wagner is a... uh, uh, a bit of a multi-tool. Um, she's a writer for about architecture, an architecture critic. Very interesting. I want to hear more about that. And then also a cycling journalist and is what I have come to know her as, um, as I've heard more about her. So, uh, Kate, good morning or good evening for you. Thank you. Good evening. Good morning. Kate, uh, I guess for the, the listeners, um, if they're not diehard cycling fans um, or even generals, they might not know uh, much about yourself yet, or maybe they will. Um, could you do us a favour and just tell us a bit about you, uh, where you're from, and um, I guess explain your role in cycling journalism today? And, uh, yeah, we'll start with that. Nice. Sorry, that's my dog. Uh, <laughs> uh, my name is Kate Wagner. I live in Chicago, Illinois, uh, and... With my husband and my dog, uh, who's barking, and uh, so I've been a, a writer full time for about six years now. Um, and before I was a cycling journalist, I worked mainly in architecture and in arts journalism. Um, and as a, as I was like a critic at a, at a magazine, etc., that kind of thing. And then during the pandemic, like I decided to sort of enter the sports journalism world. Uh, and started writing freelance uh, in that world, uh, first for Bicycling Magazine, which is, the, is an American outlet. And then second for, um, after that, then like my presence grew and grew and worked, I've worked all over now, Cycling Tips, Cycling News, Pro Cycling Magazine, Roulette. So I, there, there's only a handful of publications I haven't worked for now at this point. 
and yeah, so this year I got to go to, I covered the Tour de France. Uh, I covered the Vuelta, the whole thing. And uh, I also uh, went to the World Championships. I got to go kind of like live the dream of being a correspondent. And it was awesome. Stressful, but yeah. awesome. So, and also I run my own newsletter called Derailer, like the part of the bike, uh, which also enabled me to travel um, uh, and paid for at travel through crowdfunding. So uh, if you like like long form journalism and narrative journalism, then check that out. It's just derailer.net. Gonna plug it, sorry. <laughs> no, that's cool. I've, I've got it on my run sheet. It's actually at the end. I wanna talk about that more. Um, that's great. I guess uh, when you said you started in the pandemic um, to do some sports journalism, were you only writing about cycling when you were trying to go that uh, avenue? Yeah, yeah, just about cycling. Basically, like when uh, Primoz Roglic lost the Tour de France, I was so oh. devastated that I wrote an essay about it and then it got published in Bicycling. <laughs> and that's how it all started. And then oh. a few months later, like I ended up profiling him. I did like a 6,000 word profile on him. Um, now, Kate, that was um, that was how I came to know you so, because I was always uh, those uh, the listeners of that uh, listen to the cycling podcast. That is really the the um, the top echelon of of cycling journalism, at least on audio form, in my opinion. And um, Richard Moore, uh, I think he spoke about your article, this Roglic Roglic article on one of the podcasts and I he doesn't they don't usually talk about other people's articles unless it's really good and I was like oh okay so I went and read that and that's how I came to know about you was that Roglic article and I'll share that I'll make sure that before everyone listens to this podcast they need to read that article because um yeah it was quite a story um can you uh like tell us more about that Roglic article because you got it started with an interview is that right oh man Okay, so <laughs> I had done like some small profiles. In fact, mostly what I had done before this was like obituaries and interviews, not like a full-fledged like multi-thousand word piece profile. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd never, I'd interviewed lots of architects and artists before uh, and writers, other writers, but never, um, never cyclists. And, and, you know, this is, this is Roglic. So he's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so i i'll tell you i like agonized uh for like months uh because it it's slow going communications and cycling so i had plenty of time to lose sleep over it um and yeah. uh so i agonized for months over like what my questions would be and like like i said i was used at the time to talking to architects and artists where you give them like one deep question and they'll like go for it for like poof like you know, an, an hour and you're like, yep, this is great. This is easy. No, 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 no. I had to basically like relearn how to like interview people uh, to, when I, when I started as, as a cycling journalist and Roglic really kind of put me through uh, hell. Uh, it was like, so I, I agonized over all these questions. Finally, I call him and like, he's in Tenerife first of all. So he, he's in Tenerife. So he doesn't have Wi-Fi. So I have to call him like on my phone uh and it oh. costs like 150 dollars to call him because <laughs> oh no and so like when i call him i like have like come up with like these overwrought questions like i've learned a very very important lesson about about journalism which 
I would like to share with everyone, which is that the point of journalism is not to be the smartest and most poetic person in the room. The point of journalism is to ask questions and get answers. Even and like the best way of doing that is sometimes asking like stupid questions or questions that others might think are stupid, but are actually brilliant because like it gives like writers a chance to like speak on their own. And so like I had asked like Roglic the first interview, like all these overwrought questions, like what does it mean to be a father? Like this, like what did it mean to like your first bike? And like Roglic was like, Roglic, of course, like, you know, being a father is important to him, but like it, the first bike question, which is like every cycling journalist's like favorite question, he didn't give a shit about that. No offense. Uh, and so like, he was like, okay, so uh, he gets on the phone and he has like apparently ridden 200 kilometers on his time trial bike like, earlier that day. And he was in his third hour of media stuff. So oh my God. He truly couldn't be ours. Like, I mean, in his defense, like if I had to be him in that situation, I also would have probably like called my union. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. he like, he was so tired and like so crabby because like he had had like a long day on the bike and has had like six phone calls with journalists asking him probably like the same overall questions. Yeah. And so like he just like kind of like didn't give me anything and it was kind of devastating. I was like, oh my god, like this man is my hero. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, and so like I begged Yumbo for like a second call and the second call went really well because I decided to like just be a journalist or like try and be a journalist because huh. I wasn't quite yet like in like what like my area of expertise was essay writing so like I had to like adapt really quickly to like kind of like hard-nosed journalistic skills uh but like mm. really at that point like okay there were things I just needed to know about his life that I didn't have answers for and I went into that second call being like look I just want to know what you did in college like <laughs> and and he uh yeah and then we had like a great conversation he told a lot of jokes he's really funny um and you know he was like also like good to me during the tour when I went he didn't expect that I was going to be there and it was really a sweet moment when uh we uh-huh. met face to face uh but, oh terribly like uh right before the start of stage three of the tour and he would crash out basically that day uh and that was devastating yeah. I I was doing work at the tour for the cycling podcast at that time I was an audio diarist, and so I talked a lot about like seeing him cross the line, like bloody after like our nice interview in the morning. It was not a great day for me, but yeah. yeah so that's the long and short of that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I remember reading Kate. Uh, it might have been in the second interview when you asked him about uh, maybe his education or something. And he, he um, I mean, I haven't read the article in a few months, but I remember it was something to do with. Uh, wasn't he selling something door to door? And it was a moment then when you got through to him a bit and he seemed to open up. Yeah. So basically like how he, how I uh, opened it up uh, was that like, I just like wanted to know, like, first of all, I wanted to know what his parents did because like, and they're like normal people. And I wanted to know like mm. what he like went to school to study. Cause I knew he went to, to school, but I didn't know like for what. And so, like, I started asking him, like, this was, like, for me, really kind of, like, a fact-checking interview. Like, I wanted to, there are, like, these details about his early life, which is really what I mostly wrote about, that I really wanted to know. Um, and so, like, I had a list of questions, like, how did he meet his girlfriend, who's now his wife, and they met in school. Um, they were in school together. She was, like, she did, like, biathlon, and uh, he was skiing, and that's how they met. Uh, they were, like, student athletes, basically. He didn't get paid for ski jumping, really. Uh, he was like selling mm. stuff door to door, but he was mostly cleaning escalators in a mall at night. Like he was kind of a mess. Like, let me be real with you. Like, like when, when like Raleigh shows that he has like, he had nothing to lose starting to ride a bike. Like he really didn't have, he was like kind of 
a deadbeat no offense like he was like a college dropout like doing odd jobs like (laughs) failed failed young athlete like he was total wreck really and so uh but like you know I think a lot of people who are successful like to talk about those periods in their lives because like there's like an innocence to them that like is bemusing to them as they get older uh and so he was like very uh he had lots of like cute anecdotes. Uh, not all of them made them it made it into uh, the profile, but there are some like really hysterical ones. Uh, and he he's really funny. Like for example, like it was the it, that day was like I think stage three or four of the Giro. It was the stage that Joe Dombrowski won. And like we're both oh, yeah. watching it in uh, we're both watching it like in the background. Um, and he like was. <laughs> He, he was I was like yeah this is my first time like writing about a grand tour I mean this was still during the time where like we couldn't go abroad from the U.S. because of coronavirus but like so I was just writing about yeah. it from home and like doing like basically like a daily dispatch which kind of like grew into like a very unhinged project but that's for another that's a story for another time and anyways he was like oh yeah. busy huh like see for us it's easy we just he's like I just pedal every day <laughs> it's like <laughs> Like he's got, uh, it's a dry humor. Right? I have heard other other people talk about his his humor and say. I think he's hysteri- I think he's hysterical, and I think his delivery is yeah. so funny. Like, like at the Vuelta, he was like one, like it was like I think the third to last day of the Vuelta or something. Or st- it was the start, I think, of like stage I don't know nineteen or something. And he like is gets in the mix zone, and like he's been through this rigmarole like several times at this point. And they get all of the microphones in his face, and he's like, "Come on, guys, I'm short. Like, you got to lower." Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, see. So good. Hey, so okay, when you did the, um, like, yeah, you were starting out small, right, in the, in the journalism. Like, how did you get the original interview with Roglic? Uh, basically, like the clout of Bicycling Magazine, which uh, has like. It's like an old legacy magazine um, in America. It's like it's like yeah. the, it's like the biggest like I think print magazine about cycling in America, and it's mostly about sci- like bicycling doesn't really cover bike racing as much as it used to. Like it mostly covers like it, they cover the Tour de France, but they mostly cover like it's mostly stuff like uh, for hobby cyclists or like recreational cyclists, uh, and like they oh, also cool. do some like hard hitting like U.S. based journalism. There was like an issue that was done for them that was about race and cycling and um, and like riding a bike while mm. being black. I mean, it was like a really like heavy hitting issue. So like they do like uh, they do that kind of that kind of work. And so uh, for them to, to do this piece was like, I mean, they were going to do a couple pieces about the tour because everyone still cares about the tour, but they don't like send anyone over to the tour anymore. Like until like another American is in like tour winning condition, like. I mean, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, like bicycling, they're, mm. they're not gonna, they don't, the, the financing isn't there to send somebody over. But like they could, they did have the clout uh, and the legacy that like was that like, okay, like even though it's American media, like they were like, yeah, we can give you a phone call. It's like February, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's pretty interesting. And did you have to really push to get that second interview with Roglic? Uh, I think it was more like, I, I kind of think I phrased it as like a fact-checking interview. I'm like, it's so funny because like now, of course, like 
I'm on like relatively good terms with like the Yumbo press officers because they know me from doing two grand tours. But back then, like I just yep. was like, I was like, they were like strangers to me and I had to like bug them, you know. <laughs> it was so <laughs> so wild. Yeah. Uh but like yeah, Roglic yeah. in the second the second uh interview, he was at training camp uh in Spain and he was just like sunburnt to hell. Like his face was like bright pink. <sighs> But he was like in a good mood that day. He was like in a nice hotel. Like he was just watching his colleagues like on TV. Like he was like in a much better mood. Like making him do all those phone calls yeah. in Tenerife, like not not a great, not a great situation. And plus it was on video, which was like important, I think. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think it's yeah, it's certainly when you're interviewing someone, having the video there is um just seeing the expressions on people's faces is for sure. Uh, is helpful. Um, so when you're writing like a big sort of profile like this, you said 6,000 words and, and, you know, thousands of words, like what's the process that you go through when you're writing these stories? It's interesting because the Roglic profile was relatively unique because half of it was also about like me wanting to go be a cycling journalist uh, and like uh-huh. telling these mirror stories about like myself and Roglic. And that also like created the expectation that I was going to write about myself, which is something that I don't usually do. Or when I do, I use it as like, for example, like an expository device. Like, like, like I had, like, I used to be a cultural critic at the Baffler, which is like an American literary magazine. And uh, like, I would always open up my essays uh, about like cultural matters, like with like anecdotes from my, like a music anecdotes from my childhood and being like generally like a weird freak of a child. And so like, <laughs> but like, I don't, I'm not usually one to like really write about like myself because I think that I like, I'm interesting probably only to me. Uh, but this time, like the, it was just kind of because the interview was so important and because like it was so innately tied to like my kind of leaping away from being a fan to, to writing about the sport and so like you know meeting your hero is like really a big deal and like Roglic was my hero at the time and like he still kind of is to be quite honest uh because like I'm sorry I'm sorry but like if you like go from losing the Tour de France to winning Liège best on Liège in like two weeks like the sheer feat of like mental strength that that takes is unbelievable like yeah, yeah, I like. I think about that when I like can't get out of the, of bed in the morning. It's like, oh, but you know, like, you know especially like, the one that he lost. Yeah, it's like it's so funny. Like, but yeah, so I've done a few profiles now. Um, actually, it's like sort of what I become known for these big profiles, and and now mostly in print and not online. Um, so like mm. the next profile I did after uh, I did two profiles at the tour. One profile was I did the winner's profile of today Pagacha um like which was oh. difficult that was difficult because like no none of the written press had access to today like if you wanted to talk to him like it had to be at the press conferences but like just like observing him mm-hmm. daily and like listening to his interviews and like you know emailing him a couple times like that was like enough to write like a winner's profile of him uh, and I knew a lot quite oh. a bit about his <laughs> life and like I've actually met like a lot of his people uh he like kind of knows who I am because I like bothered him during the press conferences a lot <laughs> Uh, and it was, uh, like, I would always like ask questions that he was like, cause he really just likes to talk about bike racing, to be honest, like uh-huh. the deep stuff, like he really like can't be bothered, but like bike racing, like he, lo- he like, well, that's like the only way you can get him to open up is to ask about bike racing. Uh-huh. Uh, but anyways, like, uh, he's, he's kind of a simple guy, like, not like that he's stupid, but like, he like has one love and goal in life, which is to ride a bike. And he's just like a kid who's like very happy to do that. 
Uh, so yeah. I think that like, right. I mean, as he gets older, like he will develop like a character and a depth, but right now he's like really like just kind of like excited to be alive. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. like having truly a, a great <laughs> time, you know? Uh, and so like once you sort of gathered all the information that you need from whether you're watching them, you know, like you said, watching today or uh, you've got some information from interviews and stuff. When you're writing the actual piece, do you like, do you always start at the start or like, how does it usually work? When you That's write? interesting. Like, okay. So like the winner's profile was different. Cause that was really about the tour. Like, so there was like a brief introduction about today and about his life, but I had written about him previously. So it wasn't like, as big a deal like the, the next profile I did like was of Mate Mohoric which who is like who I'm like now like relatively pretty close to uh and oh, cool. and so like I did a rest day interview uh with him that was really great and he gave me so much material that I still haven't used all of it yet and I ended up going to his house in Slovenia like a couple weeks ago and like he gave me like six hours worth of material and those transcripts are like 30,000 words and oh. I am really yeah uh anyways he likes to talk but so like that interview was interesting <laughs> that that profile was interesting because like uh it it was really like okay so you have for example this profile was like i think three thousand birds or something which is not actually yeah. that much when you're talking about the scope of like an entire human being in my opinion uh <laughs> but like he uh so like oh it opened up with like his exploits like as a junior because like you have to kind of establish that like first of all he's important because like they don't usually give big profiles to guys like that this is like kind of like something that I work a lot towards is like doing profiles more of like people who like more she like win a stage in a grand tour like every once in a while he won two in the tour de France so they let me do this profile so uh, and I kind of followed him around the last oh, two okay. weeks the tour. uh and so like it was really like um pulling from uh like you'll have like a like a transcript like an interview transcript and really a lot of the profile kind of writes itself because you go through there and like you find like the best things to quote or the most interesting things the most poignant things and like for me I personally when I when I work um like I will through compose but I focus a lot on the transitions first and I focus a lot on like um kind of emotions and like describing char characters speaking and so like a lot of that is uh, usually the profile will follow the, the contours of the conversation and that for me makes it feel more natural. Um, but at the same time, mm -hmm. like you will always like the frustrating thing about profiles is you always end up with way more information and way more like quotes and like way more uh, flavor that like you'll ever use. Uh, and so the real difficult part actually is not writing the profile, it's editing it so that like you still have like the essential parts of it, but that like you also, uh, and, but like you have to cut a lot for me, it's like the editing it down. Uh, so I'll usually go like a thousand words over the limit and then I'll cut, um, and well, cut. That so, must be a hard part of the yeah that's the because like it's one thing if you work for web like the Roglic piece was for web because it was originally supposed to be for print but then the um like the second interview came too late basically for like the tour issue uh and so like, it ended up being for web but that also made it so that i could have like a much bigger word count with uh yeah. with print like you really are truly limited to the word count uh and like sometimes like things will just get cut if you can't cut them yourself that's like the hardest part like, for example, like I the last profile I wrote uh, was like of, of Gino Mater, who I followed around the Vuelta from day one to the end. Yeah. 
and uh like that there was things that got ended up getting cut on the cutting room floor because I couldn't keep it like you follow a guy around for three weeks like I'm sorry it's gonna be like longer (laughs) yeah that was a ripping article I read that one yesterday oh nice um from well after uh say the Roglic article I guess the next step that I know you from is uh you know you working as an audio diarist for the cycling podcast can you tell us what well I guess how did that connection come about so Richard Moore um asked new once it was established that I was going to be a correspondent for pro cycling Richard Moore like contacted me I think a week before the tour this all happened very quickly by the way like going to the tour like it like everything was planned like at least like I think like 10 days before I left anyways so he emails me, he's like, do you want to be an audio diarist? And I was like, yo, this is a cycling podcast. Like, of course I want to be an audio diarist. And so like, basically I got to like hang out with Richard and Francois, like for like a week and like go stay in their nice hotels and like eat their nice food. And uh, I had to like chronicle like my exploits uh, while I was there, which uh, sometimes I would like pre-write them uh, like as an essay or something and then read them back. And sometimes they were spontaneous. Um and like, let me say that was one of the best weeks of my whole life. It was so great. Everyone was so great. That's like, those guys are so fun. First of all, <laughs> they are also like, you know, Richard and Francois have been journalists forever. So like, they're full of like so many great stories. And like, I don't know what I would have done, honestly, yeah. without their guidance, because like that first week of the tour was just chaos. Like I'd never, mm-hmm. I'd never even been to like a bike race in Europe before. Like. So for oh, what? Yeah, no, it was like it was absolutely insane. Like seeing these men for the first time, like trying not to be starstruck, like figuring out how to be good at talking in the mix zone. These are all things that, oh. like, I really had to learn basically like the hard way. Uh, like it's like getting pushed off a diving board and told how told like you learn how to swim. <laughs> really? Yeah. So so the the mix zone. Um, you know, for uh, if you don't know people who are tuning in, the mix zone's like the uh, the it's like the spot where the riders go after the race, before okay. or after. It's like and, I call them the press pens. It's really the press pens. Okay, and when you're in there, like that must be pretty scary. Like, <laughs> and uh, and like, hey, you know, I'm sure the riders don't always want to come over there, right? Absolutely not. No, like, okay. Um, So like before the mix zone, the mix zone is a coronavirus invention. And like, in my honest opinion, it's probably going to stick around because it's really convenient for the press officers for things to work this way. Um, But before the mix zone, they used to used to do your interviews in um, like the team bosses or like the paddock or whatever. Uh, And it was a lot more casual. Like you could, there was a lot more exclusivity. But, you know, now we have the mix zone and everyone poaches interviews from one another. It's there's really no intimacy like. Uh, but at the same time, like it is pretty easy to, to get guys if, if unless they're today Pagacha, in which case, like, sorry, absolutely not. Um, and yeah, so like that was the mix zone for me. The first writer I ever. So the first time I was in the mix zone ever was like stage one, obviously, of the Tour de France in Brest. And the first writer I mm. uh, I talked to is Mike Tunison of Yumbo Visma. And Mike, okay, is, uh-huh. is like, he's the first cyclist I've ever talked to in the flesh face-to-face. And he's like such a nice guy, just like so pleasant. 
like his answers like the dutch are all like first the dutch and the belgians are all super media trained because like the dutch and the belgian press care about cycling more than any other country in probably the world so like they like are Mm. are good with journalists for the most part if sometimes occasionally a bit boring but mike tunison is like just a nice guy and so like he like uh like kind of like uh an optimistic peppy kind of guy and so like he was really uh really nice to me in the mix and I was like so excited about it like I think I talked to two other people that day I don't remember I was actually there trying to get Doug Ryder the boss of Quebec because I was actually doing some investigative journalism about the next financial situation and I was actually the person who broke that story uh for cycling news before anyone else did yeah that was like my big uh, journalism moment and that's how I got involved in investigative journalism which has haunted me ever since <laughs> like <laughs> wow uh, and so <laughs> when you're, uh, I guess, when you're at the, the, the tour this year, obviously that first week was hectic. Um, oh, it was absolutely nuts. You know, when you were, after those like big days when there was lots of those crashes, there was lots of stuff going on, did you feel like as a journalist, like you wanted to leave the writers alone because they've had such a stressful like, you know, period? Yeah, I got a story about that, actually. Um, So this is like a lesson I learned kind of the hard way, to be honest with you. So like stage five is the time trial, right? Um, And like the time trial is great. I get there like super early because like you can interview everyone basically at the time trial as they come in. So I'm like very about like I, I got to the time trial on stage five and I was like determined to like get better at doing these like quick impromptu mix zone interviews. I was like just absolutely determined. Um, and so I like, I get there and I really wanted to talk to Mark Hershey. I have like an obsession with Mark Hershey that like everyone knows about. Um, and like, I'm saying, yes, I have an obsession with Mark Hershey. Hey guys, just jumping in. I really hope you're enjoying the episode so far with Kate Wagner Uh, She's got some great stories to tell on the backside of this mid-roll. But hey, if you're loving the episode, do me a big favour. Click follow on Spotify and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're using either of those, do one of those two things because it helps the algorithm, the magical algorithm, and boosts this potty up the rankings. I think we've peaked at uh, 22nd in Australia for sports podcasts, but we're only just getting started. So hit that follow. Write a nice review if you're enjoying the episodes. And keep boosting this potty up, turn it into a monster, because it's on its way. All right, legends, enjoy the rest of the episode. Cheers. Uh, but like, an, like I have like a, like an artist's like obsession. Like, like I really want to to profile Hershey at some point. But he is like kind of like my bet noir of guys to talk to <laughs> he's terrible uh and uh so but anyways like he had crashed really violently the first day and like dislocated his shoulder and the time trial like oh it's cold it's rainy it's like the last day in Brittany, like uh and like he gets they bring him over to me finally after i like bothered his press officer forever and i first of all i forget to hit record lol and then second of all like oh no I asked him like all of these questions, like, like, what does this mean for like your prospects for the tour? Like, you know, like, how do you feel about this tour? Because you were so successful last time. And like Mark Hershey is standing there before me, 
shivering, like on the brink of tears and pain. It takes his soigneur and his press officer both to get his arm in his jacket because he can't move it. And I'm like, oh, oh fuck. God. I'm like, so sorry. Like, I am so sorry, Mark. Like, and I realized like, oh, he like really doesn't want to talk right now. <laughs> he's like, I'm, he's in so much pain. Oh. And I'm like, okay, like, I, this is like one of my most like embarrassing and upsetting memories of ever being of like interviewing anyone and it was truly like a learning experience because I was like okay like there you can't ask these questions right now but it was like the only time I had ever gotten to him I'd asked for him like four days in a row <laughs> so I was like yeah. determined to get one but it was like just you gotta also like assess the situation was like the lesson that I learned like, if they're really miserable like if they're really having a bad time like or you have to have a soft touch. Like that same day, for example, like Richard talked to Stefan Kuhn, who was like devastated. Like I can, I remember yeah. so just, I was in the mix zone like the whole day. And I remember so distinctly Stefan Kuhn leaving the hot seat, coming to the mix zone. And he's standing in front of the pen where Richard and I are standing. And he's like, not even looking at us. He's like staring like into the void. Uh, just like, and he, his like oh. bottom, his bottom lip is trembling. And he literally was just like, I, I don't oh. know how this happened. Uh, he had like come to the tour to win that stage specifically. And like Pagacha just destroyed everyone. Uh, it was a really bizarre day uh, because that was the day that everyone was like, okay, this is like some Lance Armstrong stuff. Like this is, that's when like the doping talk really started. That was, and the doping stuff was the hardest part of the tour, I will say. Wow. Wow. And why would you say that? Um, because it really like, okay, for, so first of all, like, and okay, so Matt, remember stage eight, uh, when Pogacic like takes like five minutes out of everyone in the rain, he's always been good in the rain. And he was like, just hell bent yeah. on getting into that Jersey because like he wanted to show that he owned it, which he really did. And like, of course, Vanderpool was going to drop that day. Cause it was the first real like kind of mountain stage. And so like, I honestly yeah. thought he was going to close in on Dylan tunes. Uh, and it seemed at the time like as like a superhuman performance um though like the thing is is it's always hard to tell relative to like the era for example like can you say it's a superhuman performance when bikes are like 20 percent faster than they were in like 1990 and like everyone oh, is like tell me that. yeah and like everyone has got like nutrition data everyone is like everything is completely like marginal gains like max out yeah. like there's so many like, like factors that go into like the improvement of cyclists over time that had nothing to do with doping and yet like doping was mm -hmm. like the first thing everyone like turned to especially there's like a lot of people in cycling journalism that are um cynical and like have lived through the armstrong era and like i like i'm 27 and so like armstrong like was kind of before my time i remember him like on the discovery channel yeah. But like I don't remember him like as like the star that he was. Um, but anyways, like so that was like it really divided I think uh, people because like you had to be um, you could either be really cynical uh, and be like everyone is doping, or you can be naive and just say that no one is doping. And it immediately became the discourse around Pagacha became like especially like harsh. Ironically, though, like at the end in the final press conference, no one asked him anything about doping. Like I think he finally like somehow like placated like everyone's questions. 
but they asked him over and over again. He's like a kid. He's like, wasn't around during the Armstrong era. He like said things like, you know, I haven't tested positive, which was true. And, like, <laughs> of course he would say things like that. But and everyone was like, that's just what Armstrong said. Like, this is like the same yeah. era or something. It's like, these are children. I'm sorry, but like, these are children. They do not remember everything that Lance Armstrong ever yeah. said. It's the same thing. I don't know the context. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing with Mohoric when he did the zip lips gesture. Like he had no idea. In fact, I was the person who broke that news to him. That like yes. about the Armstrong video. He was like he had no idea uh, mm. about it. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was like it was like a really um, it wasn't like combative, but it was just kind of stewing underneath the surface. And like at that time, I was probably more naive than I am now about about doping in the sport. There are things I know now. Uh, and things that I've been told by like people who like I will not name, but who like are either cyclists or like sports directors or coaches or whatever, like I'm purposely obfuscating this, but like I know for sure that like the sport is not clean. I guess uh, the innocence is lost because when when people and I guess journalists or the media and the general public get stuck into to doping accusations and and not trusting a rider's performance when really if they were following cycling for more closely they'd see that the performances are actually just justified like oh that actually you know happened last year in a different race in a smaller race or exactly you know like Pogacar in the wet he's known to dominate and really when you look at all his performances no one's ever he just does that all the time but I know it's uh it's it's so easy for one article in the, the, the biggest fishbowl race of all of them is the Tour de France to come out and then it starts dividing, you know, dividing people on it and you, know, you yeah, can't I expect think, a 22-year-old well, And the other thing is, is that, like, at that time, like, Bahrain got raided. And so, like, there are so many people, because after Stage 8, the Tour GC was over. Um, and so, like, everyone yeah. was just, like, stuck there for two weeks trying to, like, find something else to write about. Uh, and like when the, dope, when the doping raid happened in Poe, like that was like, everyone was just like, the press room was like electric that day. Everyone had found like a new lease on life. And it's like, also like your definition of clean di- differs from journalist to journalist. Like there are people who like believe that like the use of ketones, for example, by like Yumbo Visma and Quickstep and others is like, is doping. Uh, like, you know, like, yeah. or for some people, there's like a hard line at like EPO. I mean, it's really like a gray area. Like, I mean, if you like are really going to draw like a line in the sand, like you could say like ketones. Yeah, that's doping. I mean, like for me personally, like I, I don't, I don't know, uh, to be honest, like where I, where I sit on that spectrum. Um, but yeah. it was difficult at the time for me because I was profiling Mahorich. And so when that happened, um, he was really upset, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, and so I saw like, quite a bit of him being upset um and because we had become like relatively close uh like i let him borrow like my books and stuff uh and yeah we had like a correspondence and everything yeah it was that was not a great time for me uh because like i really felt like i was stuck in the middle of something that like was way bigger than me and like way more scary than anything else i'd ever done uh and it was it was rough did you feel like you had to ask him about that, you know, that whole saga at the tour? Yeah. I mean, I was going to, okay, so that day on Luzard to Den after he went in the breakaway with Alaphilippe, um, 
like I was like that's interesting because like everyone else you would think would like want to lay low and so I was like you went in the breakaway like after this thing happened like you know why and he was like yeah we have nothing to hide uh and you know uh, it was crazy. Like he, he gave this really, uh, it, the interview actually was written up by my colleague uh, in Cycling Weekly who was there standing there with me and who was the one to ask like what the what happened question because actually I was going to planning, I was actually planning on talking to Mohoric in private about it and not having it done in the mix zone. But he was yeah. like pretty open about what had happened and like kind of gave a lot of detail about what had happened. And this, this incident, by the way, is not what caused me to like lose my faith in the sport. That is something completely different. Um, yeah. uh, but this at the time was like really stressful for me because suddenly I was like in like doping journalism immediately. Like first grand tour, Oops. first like absolutely nuts. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so, yeah, like but he was like, Horch has always been really open uh, about these things and about the press. And like, he was very good about saying exactly like what happened. And he was so funny. <laughs> he's a funny guy too. And so like when it was over, like he rides off and he's singing, he's singing like Viva La France, Viva La France. Because <laughs> uh, he, he believed, he and others in Bahrain felt that it was politically motivated because the French were losing their like whatever, like 33rd or whatever, like Tour de France in a row. They haven't won since, like, you know. And yeah, yeah. I can believe that. Uh, is there anyone that, um, apart from Hershey, <laughs> is there any particular rider that you'd like to do, do a profile on in the future? Yeah. If you uh, can pick anyone. Uh, well, yeah, Hershey's interesting to me because, like, he kind of is like a black sheep now. I mean, he's like slowly, like, uh, re uh integrating himself into society i guess uh but like the mm. conditions around like what it happened, he'd had the spectacular run of the tour de france in 2020 uh he like really rides and does everything with a certain like extremely visceral desperation that i find extremely interesting uh and he like uh yeah but the stuff at sunweb was really controversial when he broke his contract he went to uae um and uh actually like i asked a, a source close to uh pagacha who said that the reason he thought hershey went to uae is because pagacha wanted him there because they were friends as juniors um which checks out to, to be honest oh. anyways um of course like yeah that's not like obviously the answer but that was a hypothesis of someone else this is how journalism works you know uh, which I think actually checks uh, out, in my opinion, because uh, they've always sort of been relatively close because they race under 23s together and juniors and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and yeah. it's interesting because so for me, like I, I I'm really interested in like kind of like the intellectuals of the Peloton. Uh, so like Moharic, for example, and I think Gino Mater also definitely falls into that. Uh, I wish I had more space uh, to give him and I'm doing I'm profiling Moharic again. <laughs> so, yeah. That, that box is ticked. Uh, for me, I think yeah. like the dream, besides Hershey, uh, right now I'm like, I would be like really interested in, um, in doing a, a profile of like, probably like, I don't know, Guillaume Martin or like, you know, a guy, guys who are like also kind of at the yeah. end of their career, like Rain Terame, for example, would be a great profile. Um, like, and also guys who are, like, really engaging and, like, um, really, like, 
uh, open, I guess you would say. Uh, I'm really interested in like, if, like Nielsen Palace, for example, is, is a great, is a great example of just a guy who's yeah. like really great to the press and like make it like a really easy, easy profile. But Hershey for me is like truly the, like a project I want to, I want to work on. Um, and I don't, cause he's under an NDA, so he can't talk about what happened at Sunweb. But like, there's no one has profiled him before, despite like how spectacularly he did last year. And like honestly, yeah. like I think like flying too close to the sun and like your wings melting off and you plummet to the earth is like one of the greatest like narrative tropes of all time. Uh, and now he's like yeah. slowly on his way back. He definitely injured himself. He he really like bent his hip out of shape. Uh, he's had a rough go mm. at it, honestly. I think this mm. is probably the roughest time he's mm. ever had in cycling. Uh, and so it'd be really interesting to yeah. like try and get to know him like even just like a modicum better because like it's funny because gino said he was like a nice guy and then but gino followed that up with like but everyone's nice <laughs> that's a great line but hershey really captured everyone's um like attention not only with obviously like winning this doing so well at the tour especially those that stage uh that he managed to win but it was like the way he was riding and um i like the way you described it um visceral desperation that's kind of how you describe his descending in a way oh yeah um and you know and then because he's so young he's had such a successful junior career up until the you know basically hit the ground running uh, as a pro as well and now he's had this you know bit of a rocky time moved team didn't have the greatest season uh at UAE, but it was on the up towards the end of the year, he started to improve. Um, and now he's got to try and basically, yeah, build everything up a, uh, again. And you're right, you don't really hear much about Hershey or see many stories about him. He's not as active on social media either. Oh, no, he never tweets. Mm. I respect mm. this about him, actually. I respect this very deeply about Mark Hershey, is that he never posts. Like, he is free from posting, which, like, God willing, we all will be soon. But yeah, with yeah. Hershey, I remember Hershey. <laughs> I remember watching that stage of the Tour de France with my husband, and like, and like, my husband like looked at Mark Hershey and was like, "Jesus Christ, this man is not afraid to die." And like, he he wasn't, he wasn't afraid to die. Mm. And like, mm. that is a mentality that like I really want to understand because like, for example, like Mahorich is like one of the greatest descenders in the peloton if not the greatest, despite mm. his Euro crash. Yeah. And, like, I, I've asked him several times, like, about, like, you know, like, he just, he's he's a father, and it's like, well, how do you decide to take those risks? And he just looked at me, and he was like, I don't take risks. But, like, with Hershey, huh. he's absolutely taking risks. Like, he, and when he crashed in that one stage, when we thought we he was just going to do it again, you know what I mean? Like, he was, he was off in the breakaway, and it really, like, and then he crashed, and then he's, like, riding in, like, and he like keeps going and he just keeps going and it's just like keep nothing matters except for like whatever forward momentum carries him closer to whatever goal he's trying to achieve. It's an absolute singular mentality of victory and nothing else. And like that is yeah. honestly pretty rare. I mean, I think there are other guys like Pagacha who have that, but Pagacha also victory is not the biggest thing for him. He really just likes riding his bike. And you know, I'd love to profile him too, but maybe perhaps when he gets a little older. Um, I think that like he's going to become more complex with age uh, because we all do. That's, yeah. that's part of being a human being. Mm. Um, but mm. yeah, so yeah, but Hershey is something else. I've never seen anything that yeah. desperate 
since, to be quite honest. Huh. Well, that's very, very interesting. Um, I guess, how would you, uh, oh, actually, this is a good one. How would you describe your writing style when you're writing about pro cycling? Uh, so I really try to be, um, for me, I was really highly influenced by the writer, the book, The Writer by Tim Crabbe. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so like, I was very, that was like a book that really inspired me to start writing about cycling narratively. Um, and so for me, like, I really think about it in a narrative sense, uh, like in a narrative nonfiction kind of sense. Um, so like going through like the races and like telling the story and unraveling the story of the races, uh, sort of, I like to write in the present tense a lot when I'm doing race recaps, even though they're the race is over when I write them, obviously, because I like that sort of like presence of it. Um, and like telling yeah. it as it unfolds. And I feel like it makes it so that like, you don't know, the, even if you know what happens in the race, you don't know the ending of the story until you get to the end of the, um of the piece and so like I also like to write in the long form so like 2,000 words or more uh yeah. and uh it's funny because when I was a, an architecture critic I wrote in the, the short form like 1500 or less um but yeah. as a cycling journalist I really except for what I'm doing like journalism journalism where it's like this happened on this date etc like like when I was covering Slovenia national team yeah. changes or like the Quebec and next hash stuff like that's like short form journalistic writing, like 650 words, but like a lot of like the stuff on derailer, which is like race recaps, which are now sort of also in cycling news and the profiles. Uh, I really, the profiles I think for me are very uh, sincere and I try really hard to uh, almost treat it like a short story where you're like painting like this character and like really like doing justice to like their personality, the way that they talk, like, um, the intricacies of their lives and finding like something to care about because that's really the point of of the profile and not and not relying on cliches um yep. and so yeah so for me like the narrative element uh this is part of the reason why i like doing sports journalism to begin with because essay writing is not always narrative and like i had done six years of essay writing and this gave me an opportunity to tell stories uh, which was mm. uh, like and it, it, at the time extremely refreshing and and it enabled me to like mm. um, hone my chops as a writer in a way that I hadn't been challenged uh, in years. So mm. um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And with derailer.net, um, give us a rundown about that. Tell me more. So I started that newsletter in February of last year um, and I've used it for um, it's been, I wanted to, to publish stuff that at the time I thought was unpublishable other places because no one to, would want to okay. pay for it. Uh, like for example, like the long form narrative recaps of races, like I didn't think anyone would pay for that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start my own publication to do that. Uh, mm. and then it turns out like cycling news would pay for it, obviously. But like at the time, like it was like, I hadn't really done anything, uh, except for like a couple of pieces, uh, for bicycling at that time. And like, I did, a, I did, um, 
this was before I even wrote for like pro cycling or anything. So I really was just like writing to write uh, to see if anyone wanted to read it and to see if I could get an audience, et cetera. Uh, this is not unfamiliar to me. Um, at the time, like when I started my blog, McMansion Hell, which is like pretty like infamous on the internet or whatever. Uh, like <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, I used like crowdfunding for that too. So like, it's, this is not the first or the last, probably even the last publication I will like start run or whatever uh, in my life. Yeah. And so uh, it was like pretty slow going at first because I started it in the off season. Uh, and then like, uh, I did like an essay about Strata Bianchi that went pretty well. Uh, and then, um, I did a lot of illustration work too, for that. I've done like almost like graphic novel adaptations. So like when I was covering the Giro with my colleague Jackson, who I brought in around April, who, uh, Jackson Roman, he went to journalism school and like, he was just like working as a copywriter. Uh, and like, yeah. we've like met in a cycling server and like have been friends forever. And so like, I think he's a good writer. So I was like, yeah, like come do work for me. Like I'll pay you. Um, and so now we both like, we both run that publication and we're about to launch our off season package. But like, anyways, when I was doing the Jiro, I did like a graphic novel adaptation of the win of Taco Vanderhorn. And I managed to do this in like an entire day. Like it's like seven or eight panels, like absolutely an unhinged amount of work. Like I can't believe at any point in my life, I was ever that, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't imagine doing that now, to be quite honest. Like, I really can't, like, <laughs> these things take me so much longer than they used to. It's so funny when you start and you're like, just like gun ho, you're like, your foot is just on the gas the entire time. Uh, and I still do some illustration work, but uh, not as much as I, as I did before. Um, and certainly not in the graphic novel format. There was a graphic novel I did about Vanderpool Cyclocross, and then one I did of Taco Vanderhorn. And mm -hmm. and then that was, I was like, I, I there were some graphic novel elements that I did in other pieces, but mostly there were single illustrations. And I was like, okay, that's it. You know, like I, if I keep doing this, I'm going to absolutely <laughs> burn out, you know? Uh, and so yeah. I used that newsletter also during the tour to and the Vuelta to document like my travels. So kind of like as a personal blog mm. uh, and with some essays about the stages, though, I think to be honest with you, like now I'm really done uh, writing about myself, just like full stop. Okay. Like, okay, buildings Roman over. I'm just a cycling journalist now. It's not special anymore that I was like something else uh, or that I still am something else. It's like, you know, like Haruki Murakami wrote about tennis or whatever, like, uh, yeah, or, just yeah. like... <laughs> there's it's like not actually that mm -hmm. special or different for writers to dabble in sports writing or to even like become invested like hunter s thompson i think was into sports writing like it's not like uh it's not that crazy it felt crazy at the time obviously and learning how to be a journalist was truly uh a trip but at this yeah. point it's like okay you've made it just write about the about cycling <laughs> let the world Let's do the talking. So, what are your uh, what are your plans for twenty twenty two? No idea. Uh, nothing ever gets decided until <laughs> like after December. Um, very uh, annoying. Okay. But... but what would you love to do if you could if you could just take one thing off next year? Oh, I would love would to it, do but... the Giro because um, I've never done the Giro uh, Tour of Romandy. Um, and also tour Slovenia 
I I'm like 50 50 on whether I want to do the tour or the Vuelta. Um, the tour, like you feel left out if you don't do it. And it's obviously the biggest and people care the most about it, but like no offense to France, but it's really expensive. Um, the tour is, (laughs) the tour is the most expensive to do. Um, like it's also the most stressful and it's also the one where like getting a press pass is going to be the most difficult. Like, will I do the tour if someone is going to like give me press access or if I can like get it myself for derailleur or if like, uh, like I can finance it in time. Sure. But like the Vuelta is like at least half as much. It costs half as much to do the Vuelta. Also, I can speak Spanish. I can't speak French. Uh, Uh, That's certainly. Is it hard getting the press pass? For the tour, absolutely. Um, but like for everything else, I don't not it's it's hard, but like uh for me, like I was writing for established outlets, so it wasn't that bad. And I also went on yeah. for example, I went on pro cycling's press pass both times. Couldn't you just like um like if you're trying to get your press pass for the Tour of France to 2022, can't you just flash some of your profiles that you've done and go, look, I'm legit, this is it. Yeah, I think that's really what's going to have to happen. Or And also, like, committing to doing other ASO races, like the Dauphiné, for example. Um, just kind of like, okay, oh, if, yeah. you give me the tour, if you give me the tour press pass, like, I will cover also the Dauphiné. And maybe in Paris-Nice. Like, oh. I don't like, I, again, I maybe will have to learn French, which, like, very daunting. I'm, like, already, like, in the process of, like, applying for a visa to go learn Slovenian. So, like, it's, like... <laughs> Because I want to do a book on Slovenian cycling at some point. Uh, That's cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. You, did you say Roma D uh, because there's a high likelihood that Hershey will be there? <laughs> I didn't even think about that. No, I just, I think Switzerland is beautiful. Uh, I think yeah. Switzerland is like one of the most beautiful places on earth and any excuse I have to go there is like good. And I think I prefer, I think Roma mm. is a more interesting race than Tour of the Alps or Tour de Suisse. So... Mm. Uh, this year's edition wasn't so interesting, but like usually it's pretty interesting. Um, and I also like I also yeah. like Tour de Suisse too, but like the timing on that one's a little weird. Um, uh, have you ever been to Australia? Okay, I would love to go for Worlds next year. It's just that's a very expensive plane ticket, and like I don't know if anyone's gonna be like. I'd love to go to Australia. I have like several. I have like one of my best friends on Earth lives there. Like I would love to go. It's like, and you know, mm. I, I dated a guy in college who went and like, who like did an exchange there and like never stopped talking about how great it was. Uh, and mm. also like, you know, it's it's always like just sort of been on a bucket list to go just as like someone who likes to hike. <laughs> I'm sorry, but or ride a bike. You yeah, know? yeah. But yeah, yeah worlds. I love worlds. Is my favorite race of the year. Um, Full stop. Yeah. Like nothing for me ever compares compares to the World Championships. Like not the Tour, not any Grand Tour, not any stage race. Worlds, not Paris Roubaix, not any classic. Worlds to me is top, top, unbeatable. Hmm. So like, if I could find a way to make it over there to go for Worlds, with it's just the only thing is it's like a the cost and b Corona is going to be really I think difficult. Uh, even like again the next year. So like I I would love yeah. to to do that. I mean. I would, it would also be cool if, like, an Australian won in Australia, in my opinion. But. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty certain, uh, from what I've heard, that the organisers are trying to build a course for you and, or at least one that will end in a, some sort of bunch sprint. In a bunch sprint. Uh, 
Yeah, because they definitely want they definitely want you to win it. But we're so excited. It's so cool, especially for me, because I didn't think if there wasn't one in Australia, I don't know if I'd ever go and be able to go and see one. So the fact that it's it's still crazy to think that it's here next year. Um, so you're yeah, definitely going to go, right? And I bet you could probably get oh, a yeah. because very few uh, publications are going to go because it's so far away and like their budgets are tight or whatever. So for small press, it's going to be great if you could get in. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I'm actually trying. I'm trying to get um, some access to the the Santos Cycling Festival. You know, it's not the Tour Down Under this year, so they still run it as a a domestic event for the Australian domestic teams. And I'm hoping that I could try and get into that somehow and then come uh, Wollongong Worlds, maybe I can get a link there. But, I'm you know, sure, Kate, sure they actually could. have the, the junior. Yeah, well, I'll definitely try. Um, the junior nationals is on for Australia. Uh, junior cycling nationals is on the week before the Worlds. And um, I usually go over there in a coaching capacity anyway. So I'm going to be there no matter what. Absolutely. Well, uh, Kate, thank you so much for um, talking with me and everyone here. And, uh, yeah, some of the stuff you, you talked about was so good. And, and thanks for sharing all those stories with us. It's, it's really, really cool to hear. Yeah, thank you for having me and asking good questions. about. I never, ever get to talk about writing and, like, the process of writing. Uh, I feel like everyone just cares that I used to be an architecture <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's funny because i'm coming from the other side going i don't know what an architecture critic is and i've, I've looked at all your stuff and it's uh, it's pretty cool but um yeah look everyone i'll chuck on the uh the links to some of kate's uh work and um and you can check her out and derailer.net all those sort of links i'll chuck them in the descriptions you'll learn how to do that and uh yeah i guess hopefully we've installed a few more fans and followers from australia for you oh, yeah. kate to follow some of your great writing work and, and um we're all going to look out for your uh your pieces and, and, and profiles into 2022 thank you And that concludes episode four of the Press Room Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, you absolute legends. Big thanks to Kate for coming on the pod. It was so good talking with her. We had a great time and some of those stories I won't forget uh, that we learned about Roglic, uh, Mohoric, uh, today, Hershey, all that sort of stuff. It was so good to hear. And um, if you want to catch up and see more of what uh, Kate does, check her out on Twitter. She's very active on there. I've posted the Roglic article uh, in the description below. Also worth checking out the uh, article she did on Gino Mater on, uh, in Pro Cycling Magazine. That's a really good one. And just uh, in general, keep an eye out on Cycling News, Cycling Tips. A lot of the articles uh, that she uh, writes also feature on those platforms. So... Six episodes left of season one, my friends. It's so good to have you along. In the coming weeks, we've got some, oh my God, we've got some guests. We've got some guests. If we haven't already had some, right, we've got Ineos Grenadiers. We've got Team Bike Exchange. We've got Nero Continental. uh, We've got all sorts of stuff going on. So make sure you hit subscribe, follow, hit the Instagram page up. You must like the Instagram page, okay? You must like the Facebook page. Share it. Because it's all happening there. That's where the information is getting updated. And just day by day, week by week, 
this podcast is growing. That's all thanks to you. All right. So I'll see you again next week. The Press Room Podcast. Catch up.